<clears throat> well, we started the book of Hebrews last week. If you weren't here, you can go back and, and check that out. But we are going to journey through this amazing book for the next nine or ten months. should be just a fantastic time. You know, people, uh, people sometimes say kind of dumb things. Did you, did you know that? <laughs> um, things they don't really know what they mean by or why they said it. One of those dumb things that, that I hear people say, and I've probably said this before too, actually, is, uh, you know, I don't really do theology. I just, I, just, I just have a relationship with Jesus. I don't do theology or, or how about this one? Uh, I don't do doctrine. Uh, it's too divisive. Div- doctrine divides. I just love people, right? And people say these things, and I know what they mean by them. You know, what they mean by them is, is well, theology tends to, to produce sometimes people that are very academic, but they don't have a lot of heart knowledge or a lot of maybe love, you know, in their heart. So they think, well, maybe the problem is theology. Maybe we should de- just stop going to seminary and stop reading big books and, and, and reading things written by dead guys. And maybe that's the problem, you know. And people say doctrine divides because it does, because that's actually its job. Did you know that? <laughs> yeah, doctrine is designed to divide. I want to explain those two words for you really quick because I think we misunderstand them. Theology is a combination of two words, theos, which means God, and logos, which means to study or to understand. So theology is what? Is the understanding of God. It is the pursuit of understanding who God is. Doctrine really uh, is the statement or the, um, the conscious or subconscious set of beliefs that we have regarding something. So we all, whether you think you do or not, we all have a theology and we all have a doctrine. Everybody in the world, everybody in your family, everybody everywhere has a doctrine and they have a theology. And they also have a Christology. Christology is the study of Christ. They, they all have um, some kind of a view of what they think about Jesus. Now, either your doctrine has been formed by you or it's been formed for you. So if you think you're avoiding doctrine, if you think you're avoiding theology, it's not that you are, it's just that you've let someone else do your thinking for you and you've let someone else sort of fill that in for you. We cannot say that we're not about theology and say that we're Christians. Why? Because as Christians, we are those who pursue and love and worship God. And we need to know who he is. We need to understand who this God is that we worship. Um, what you believe is upstream from what you do. Do you know that? Everything that you do is because of something you believe. So before we can get at behavior, we need to get at what? Thinking. We need to get at theology. We need to get at doctrine. We need to get upstream beyond what we do to why we do what we do, what we think. The author of Hebrews is very interested in understanding and helping the audience understand who Christ truly is. You know, everybody has a view of Jesus. Everybody has one. Um, The Mormons have a view of Jesus. They believe Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. You can find it on their website. Spirit brother of Lucifer. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe Jesus is Michael the archangel. Okay? Muslims have a view of Jesus. They believe he was the prophet, one of the prophets of Allah. Okay? Universalists have a view of Jesus. They believe he is one of many ways to get to God. Uh, secular historians have a view of Jesus. They believe he was just a person, uh, a good man, a good teacher who his followers later made into a God. Uh, Orthodox fundamental Christians, which I would hope we all are, <laughs> uh, have a view of, of Christ. What is that view? 
Oh, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, that he is fully God, fully man, and that we worship him as God, that we are saved by Christ, having faith in Christ. Um, now, unfortunately, not a lot of people that say they're Christian believe that anymore. The idea of who Jesus is and what makes Jesus God or not God is not something that 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 people think about as much as they really should. The author of Hebrews is very concerned with this under, with us understanding adequately and correctly who Jesus is uh, now and who he was and who he, what he will do as time unfolds. Um, he is trying to help a group of ethnically Jewish Christians that are drifting away from Jesus as their primary mediator back into Judaism. We talked about that a little bit last week. And what the author's going to do is rather than just sort of scold them and say, hey, cut this out, he's going to paint for us and for them a higher Christology, a bigger portrait of who Jesus is so that they can see that there is no other way to the Father other than through Christ, that Jesus is the only way that we truly know the Father. Now, the world says that the only way we can uh, know ourselves is if we go find ourselves, right? We need to go find ourselves. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? The Bible says you only know yourself when you know God yourself. Okay? You only know who you are when you know who God is, because only when you know God can you understand who you were truly made to be. So we'll never really know who we are until we understand who Jesus is. And that's what we're going to spend this morning doing, really continuing to wrestle with this idea of who is Jesus. Today, and if you're a note taker, write this down. Today, I want you to see three things that you can know you are because of knowing who he is. Okay? Three things that you can know you are by knowing who he is. And we're going to see these unfold throughout the text that we read this morning. Let me give you a little bit of review. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 3. Uh, and that was a very densely packed portion of Scripture. And here's some of the things that we learned in that passage. First of all, we learned that, that Jesus is God's final word. We learned that Jesus is the full and final disclosure of God's personhood and God's plan, that we can know who the Father is because Jesus is one with the Father. He is both the radiance and the exact imprint of the Father. Jesus is the ultimate lexicon, the ultimate language of God. He is God in human flesh, fully God, fully man. We know who the Father is ultimately through Jesus. So last week, we learned that God spoke through many ways, through many prophets at many different times, but in these last days, which we are in the last days right now, in these last days, the full disclosure of God's personhood and plan are found in Jesus Christ. So that's why we, we seek to understand him. We seek to know him. We found that uh, Jesus is both the founding agent of creation, and he's still the superintendent of creation, meaning he was there when it was made, and meaning he is the one that holds all things together. He is the, the glue that is literally allowing the universe to continue to exist. He is all of these things. We also learn that Jesus is seated because atonement is completed. You remember that last week? That Jesus is not standing every day in the temple like human priests did, day after day, offering sacrifice after sacrifice. Every time you blow it, Jesus doesn't have to stand up and go back into the temple and, and offer another sacrifice. No, he's seated because it is finished, right? And that's what we need, that's the way we need to live. We need to live like Jesus is seated. 
at the right hand of the Father. The priest has sat down because the atonement is finished. These are big concepts, and the author is going to continue to double-click on these concepts as we work our way through chapter 1. He's going to continue to introduce us to the person of, of Jesus. Now, this is kind of bizarre, but what he's going to do in these verses, he's going to start comparing Jesus to angels. Did you notice that when we read it? He's going to start comparing it to angels. And we need to ask the question, as good Bible students, why is the author of Hebrews trying to compare Jesus to angels? What is the purpose of that? He's going to use seven Old Testament quotations in our text this morning. He's going to show seven Old Testament quotations in order to prosecute the case that Jesus is better than angels, is what we're going to see. So let's just dive right in, in verse 4. Having become, note that word, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now stop right there. Here we are introduced by the author in verse 4 to the point of the rest of this text, and that is the superiority of Jesus over angels. Okay, now why angels? Why is the author concerned with showing Jesus is superior or superior already over angels. Now, the answer we'll find in the weeks to come is that, that the author is arguing for the new covenant over the old covenant. See, these guys were tempted to drift back into the old covenant. What was the old covenant? Well, it was Judaism. It was going into the temple, right? Week after week, ceremony after ceremony. It was, it was being under the law, which was meant to be our schoolmaster, to drive us to the new covenant. They were tempted to drift back to the old covenant. And what the author's trying to get his audience to do is say, don't go back to the old covenant. There's a new covenant. There's a greater covenant. There's the ultimate covenant. And the one that brought that covenant was Jesus. Now, who did the first century Jews believe brought the old covenant? Angels. It was widely believed that the old covenant was delivered on Sinai by angels, that they were the messengers of, that delivered the old covenant. So what the author's trying to get us to see here is that the new covenant is greater. Why? Because the new covenant deliverer is greater. Are you with me? That's what we're going to see. Now, I just want to take a quick second and ask the question, what are angels? What are these guys? What are these angels? I'll tell you what they're not. They're not chubby little babies that are naked on the top of ceilings. Don't know how that happened. That's bizarre, right? <laughs> Seriously, it's, it's really weird. Okay. Like you got like Isaiah chapter 6 where like these winged, six-winged flaming angelic hosts. And I could just see Michelangelo being like, yeah, chubby babies. I could see that. Chubby babies. Yeah. Um, no. What are angels? Just take a second and think about that. Angels are celestial spirit beings created by God for God's purpose and God's praise. There are different kinds of angels. There seems to be a hierarchy of sorts of angels. We see the cherubim who have four wings who are often sent out to deliver messages. We see the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6 that seem to be sanctified or set apart primarily to praise God in the holy of holies, the throne room, these flaming ones. We see uh, certain angels by name. We know Gabriel. We know Michael. So there's a, a hierarchy there. We know that these are not eternal beings, but they are immortal beings. And they were created for the, to do the bidding of God. They were created to be his, his, his army. They were created to be his messenger. They were created to do his will and carry out his will. 
That was their job. We know that a third of them fell before creation, and now we call them demons. We know that Satan was an angel, and that he fell uh, at one point, and now he is referred to as the Satan in the Old Testament and the New. They were created before the cosmos. There was a great war. Evil seemed to have existed before Adam and Eve because evil was already existed in the heavenly places. So we know a few things about these guys, but the point of the passage really isn't about angels. I don't want to preach a sermon this morning about angels. I want to preach a sermon this morning about Jesus because Jesus is superior to angels in every way, and that's the point that's going to be prosecuted here. Now, if you're a careful reader, and if you were sitting down reading this, you might notice a word that might trouble you a little bit in verse 4. It's the word become. Look at it again. It says, having become as much superior to angels. So wait a minute. Is this saying that Jesus wasn't always superior to angels? Does this mean that at one point he was lower than the angels? We'll flip one page over to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, and I'm just going to answer that question really quickly. And part of my job, by the way, is not only to preach a sermon and not only to teach you the text, my, my job is to help you interact with troubled passages, passages that people might have a hard time with. I want to help you think through those because I have the time during the week to study them and help you think about them, okay? Uh, so chapter 2, verse 9, here's what he says. Um, we see him, that is Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the, gra by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So what do we learn here? Jesus was not made as in created lower than the angels. He was made for a time lower than the angels. What does that mean? It means when Jesus became a man, he chose to lower himself below the angels in the creation hierarchy. Now, he was still God, but he chose for a time to become man. Now, why did he do that? Well, we learn uh, it's so that he could go to the cross, Okay, and I just want to address that really quick. So he became superior, uh, he, he has become superior to the angels because he chose for a time to be made lower than the angels. Now, the point in verse 4 here is that the reason Jesus is superior is because he has a greater name. But what is the greater name? Verse 5 answers. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So here's the first point. The first point is that Jesus is the superior one to angels because he is the son of God. And there's a uniqueness to this idea of the son of God. And he quotes two Old Testament scriptures here in verse 5. You can look them up later. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, 2 Samuel 7, 14. And he does this to illustrate uh, the uniqueness of Jesus over against angels. No angel was ever referred to as the Son of God. The angels in the Old Testament are referred to as the sons of God, little s, but never referred to as the Son of God. And I want to interact with this just really quickly for a moment here. What does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? Have you guys ever wondered about that? Uh, have you guys ever tripped on that a little bit? Wait a minute. How is it that we believe Jesus is God, but he's also God's Son? How does that work? And, and why is the word Son chosen to be the way that God is described? Let's just think about that for a minute. What does, uh, what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God, and how does it make him superior to angels? First of all, Jesus being the Son of God refers to his unique position. 
refers to his unique position as the Trinitarian co-heir of all created things. When the Bible says, when the New Testament says that Jesus is the Son of God, it doesn't mean that God made him. It means that that Jesus is equal to him. If you don't believe me, then just read the Gospels. What did the Pharisees kill Jesus for? For claiming to be God. Well, how did he claim to be God? By saying he was the son of God, it says he made himself equal with God. In the first century, to say you were the son of God was to say that you were truly God. That's the idea there. To say, also, to say that he's the son is to say that he shares the attributes of the father. So when you see the son, you see the same imprint or the same radiance as the father. To say he is the son is to say that he um, shares the divine nature, okay, that he is God. And he, by the way, he didn't become the son when he came into this world. He's always been the son. Did you know that? It's always been God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. That wasn't something that happened when Jesus came into the world. He's always been the son of God. He'll always be the son of God. We have a hard time understanding the word son because we really have jettisoned the importance of family and legacy in many ways in our culture. We, um, if, if we don't like our family, then we say they're toxic and we go find another one, right? Uh, we go find a, another group of people that will accept us. But this, the, the Bible was written in its cultural context. It was written to people in an honor-shame culture. And probably one of the most important and most valuable things that you had was the legacy of your family. And if you were the firstborn son, as we'll talk about in a moment, um, you took on the name of the family. That was an incredibly important and high and prestigious honor to be the son in that way. We just kind of miss all that. A lot of that's lost on us. So what does that matter? Now, I, I told you in the beginning that theology is important. And right about now, you might be going like, yeah, but it's really boring. What does it matter? What does it matter, Sam? So Jesus is the son of God. So what? Okay, what does it matter? Well, I want to help as we go through this. I want to help you understand why these things that might seem kind of, um, I don't know, big or, or dry really matter to your life. And they really matter to the way that you view yourself. Why does it matter that Jesus is the son of God? Well, one of the main things that I've noticed that we chase in life, and tell me if you found this true, is acceptance. Isn't it? I, I, was, I was, did a retreat uh, yesterday with a group of guys, and um, we, we were all sharing our testimonies. And one thing that I noticed in so many of the guys, including myself, in our testimonies, is that so much of our life has been spent chasing acceptance. I just want to be accepted. It starts in like fourth grade, the first time you get called an idiot by your friends. First time you get picked on, right? The first time you find yourself lying because you don't want to disappoint your mom or disappoint your dad. The first point that, that you feel um, rejected or ashamed. And you, and you find yourself just going into overdrive. I just want to be accepted. I want to be accepted by my friends. I want to be accepted by my family. We all chase this. We all chase this. So what does it matter uh, practically? Okay, Sam, I get it, that Jesus is the son of God. Okay, but what does that matter practically to me in my life? Well, I'll tell you, it matters because that thing in you that's constantly seeking acceptance It will not and cannot be found in this world. You will not feel accepted by seeking acceptance from your spouse, from your friends, from your parents. You'll never find it. True acceptance is only found in the one who has been eternally accepted. Think about that. You know, love existed before you. Love isn't just something you do. Love is God. How is God love? Well, because God is a trinity. God is three persons in one. God is love because God has been loving for all eternity. 
And so it's not just that we are accepted by God, it's that we are invited into the inner Trinitarian, eternal, never-ending acceptance of the Godhead that has been going forever. That's a big thought. But that longing that you have, that longing to be accepted, that longing that makes you want to work harder at work and hopes that somebody might affirm you, that, that, that longing inside of you that just wishes your dad would call and say, good job, I'm proud of you, whatever that is, that's fine. But I need you to remember that we are accepted because Jesus is the accepted son of God. And we have been adopted into that family. Let me read for you Romans chapter 8, verse 14. This is for all who are led by the spirit of God. That's Christians. Um, are sons of God. Isn't that good news? For you did not receive the spirit of slavery. Every time that you're bumping up against that constant, exhausting, nagging, just tiresome feeling of I don't feel accepted, that's slavery. You have been given a spirit, not of slavery, of what? Not of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. You are sons and daughters because Jesus is the son of God. He didn't have to earn that title. Pastor Jeremy, a few weeks ago, he pointed out when Jesus popped out of the water, when he was baptized, the father said, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus hadn't done anything yet. The father was pleased in the son, not because of his obedience, but because he was the son. And in the same way, the gospel relieves that ache we have for acceptance because God doesn't accept you because of what you've done. He accepts you because you're in his son. You're united with the son. Isn't that great? What does it matter that Jesus is the son of God? It matters because you are in Christ, believer. And if you're in Christ, then God the Father has accepted you because you are one with the son. You have become united with him. The spirit of adoption, it says in Romans, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The word Abba, it's the Aramaic for, it's, it's, it's the first word a baby would say when they would see their dad, Abba. It's, it's this just very, intimate, very um, childlike relationship that we now have with the Father. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of God. So that's our, our first thing. I want you to connect the dots here. One thing you can know about yourself, because you can know who he is, is, is that you find acceptance when you see his preeminence. Write that down. We find acceptance when we see his preeminence. When we see that he is the Son of God, we can remember that we are now sons and daughters. Verse 6. Verse 6, and again... When he brings the firstborn, I want you to note that word, because we're going to dig into some deep concepts here. So just just wake up. If you need to grab some coffee, grab it, but we're going to go big here, okay? Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And what in the world does that mean? Let's spend a little bit of time on verse 6. First of all, the author here is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, which if you go back and look that up, you're going to find Moses' song. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, it's called Deuteronomos, the second law. Uh, Moses is writing his final words to the children of Israel before he dies. And in Deuteronomy, he ends the book with this song, a song of praise. And in that song of praise, Moses, oh, these guys are grabbing coffee. I love it. Uh, <laughs> I told you to. Okay. In the song of praise, Moses is declaring that the angels should worship Yahweh. Who is the author of Hebrews saying the angels are worshiped? Or the angels are worshiping? Jesus. What does that tell us? It tells us that the author of Hebrews sees Jesus as Yahweh. The angels are worshiping him. It's incredible. 
Now, I want to talk about this phrase, brings the firstborn into the world. This needs a little bit of explaining, and I want to give you guys some tools as you interact with people that might be caught up in the cults, okay, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, other things, where uh, they will take you to this passage, and they will misunderstand this passage. They will say, see, Jesus is the firstborn of, into the world. He, he's the firstborn of the world. That means he was created. How are you going to answer that? What are you going to say to that? I want to talk about that word firstborn. If you're taking notes, write this down. Firstborn is the Greek word prototokos. It's an important word to know. It comes up a lot in the New Testament. Prototokos. And here's what it doesn't mean. Firstborn here does not mean first created. It does not mean first created. Okay, there's a couple ideas that the New Testament author wanted us to be able to grab when he said firstborn. And one of those ideas is not that he was the first to be created. It's not like God decided he was going to make the world, he created Jesus first, and then he created the rest of the world. That's, that's not true. That's not what it's saying. The first, being, the first thing firstborn means is preeminence. Preeminence. It's primacy. Firstborn simply means that he is the one who has the rights to the universe. He is firstborn in that he is the heir. He is the heir apparent, okay? And we know that because every other place that firstborn is used in the New Testament, it's used that way. Look at Colossians. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, prototokos, firstborn of all creation. Now, you might think, if you stop there, you might think that that's saying Jesus was created, but it's not. Look at verse 16. For by him... All things were created, and in case you missed it, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So firstborn here we find doesn't mean first to be created. Firstborn means he is the first importance. He is the older brother, and therefore he is the one that will inherit the world. The second idea that comes with this is resurrection. If you look at Colossians, and you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it for you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, it says, he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, and now listen, tune in. He is the beginning, beginning of what? Well, we'll see. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So what does firstborn mean? Firstborn doesn't mean first created. Firstborn means he is not only the first in preeminence, but he is the first to be resurrected. Firstborn into what? Firstborn into the new eternal reality that is the resurrection world that we're all waiting for. Jesus was the firstborn, meaning he was the first to be resurrected. You say, well, what about Lazarus? Like, what about all the other people? that? Well, those, those people weren't resurrected. They were resuscitated. It's different. When Jesus was resurrected, he didn't just come back from the dead. He wasn't just mostly dead, right? He didn't just come back from the dead. He was remade in that sense that, or not remade, he, he was reborn in a sense that he was the first Adam, the first seed of an entirely new reality, entirely new world. And we're going to follow him into that. So when it says, back in our text, when it says he's the firstborn into the world, world is referring to the new world, He's like Christopher Columbus, man. He's opened up the door to a new world. 
Now, so what, Sam? Isn't that just dry in theology? What does that matter? How does that matter to me? Does that make any difference in my life? Well, it absolutely does, okay? And here's the second thing, if you want to write it down. second thing you can know about yourself, if you know him, is that we find transcendence when we see his ascendance. We find transcendence when we see his ascendance. What do I mean by that? Transcendence, I have found, is one of the main things that we as humans are seeking. You know what transcendence? We want to we transcend out of the dullness and the flatness and the brokenness and the painfulness of this world, don't we? That's why we sit there watching 4K movies that are unrealistic. They're superhuman where people are doing things that we could never do. What are we doing in that moment? We're transcending. We're trying to get out of the drumness of our life. We're trying to get out of the dullness of our life and into something better. Why do we do that? We do that because we weren't made to live in a fallen world. We were made to live in a resurrected world. When Jesus became the firstborn, he was like a seed planted in the ground that would grow up into an entirely new reality. And when you get saved, you become born again into that new reality. It's transcendent. You are literally belong to the next world. It's an incredible thing. It's like Dorothy, right? Dorothy is in Kansas. That's all she's ever known. And, and, and this was around the time when color movies, I think, were kind of rare. Uh, they didn't have a lot of color movies. And so when you're in the theater or whatever, and all of a sudden Dorothy appears and she cracks the door open and you start to see color peeking through the door. That's where we're at right now, by the way. You're starting to see color peek through the door. Well, what's the color? It's the spirit of God at work in your life. When you experience a supernatural love of Jesus and his spirit through the body, when you experience the presence of God tangibly and really in your life, when you experience the gospel, when you experience the freedom that you've been saved and found in Jesus Christ, when you experience the freedom of Jesus on the throne, that's that color, it's popping through the door. And what are we waiting for, church? We're waiting for the door to be opened and to walk out like Dorothy and see real color. We've never seen it before. We've never seen it. That's what the resurrection is. When Jesus comes on the clouds and he raises us and gives us new resurrected bodies and creates a new universe that we're gonna live in forever, that's ultimate reality. That's transcendence. That's what we're all waiting for. That's what the world wants. And they can't get it no matter how much money, no matter how much technology, no matter how, much, no matter how many experiences that they have, no matter how high of accolades they achieve, that transcendence is not there. Because it's only found in one person, the transcendent one, the new genesis of a new eternal reality, Jesus. The beginning of real life. <laughs> Isn't that good news? But we forget that, don't we, in the day, the day-to-day -day stuff? That's why we need the gospel. That's why we need to open up Hebrews and we need to read about the fact that Jesus is the first, firstborn into a new world. And we long for that. Number, verse 7. Let's finish this out. And of the angels, he, said, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Okay, the angels are servants is the point there. Verse eight, but, this, but of the son, he says, your throne, oh, what? Who's he talking about there? You guys still think that Jesus, I mean, it, it, the peop, people really have a hard time. Like, I just don't know. Does it really say Jesus is God? I mean, is Jesus really God in the Bible or is that just something we made up? Well, what does this say right there? Quoting the Old Testament, but the Son, but of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, it's talking about Jesus, is forever and ever. It's an eternal kingdom. 
The scepter, which is um, a word for the rule of God, the rule of God is, is uprightness. The scepter of uprightness, the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness you, and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. What was the oil of gladness for Jesus? It was the joy that was set before him. It was the joy of purchasing the bride. It was the joy of surrendering to the Father. Verse 10, and this is a cool verse. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens of the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. And like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and for year, and your years will have no end. What is the point? The point is that creation is going to come, it's going to ebb, it's going to flow, it's going to change, it's going to be recreated, but Jesus stands above it all, sovereignly over it all, eternal. He has not been created. He is over it all. That's the point. I like what Kent Hughes says about this. He says, what stupendous thoughts as a man during his lifetime outlives many successive suits of clothes. So Christ will see and outlive many successive material universes, yet will himself remain eternal and unchanging. It's pretty cool. Verse 13, we'll finish it here. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Right hand is synonymous for power. It's co-regency, okay? Jesus at the right hand of the Father is they are sharing rule. They are equal in heaven. Are they not, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits, that is the angels, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So what's the point? What's he getting at here? The point is that the angels are servants and Jesus is sovereign, okay? The angels are servants. Jesus is sovereign. The angels are there to serve Jesus. Jesus is there to command the angels because Jesus is God. It's just plain and simple. So what? What does that matter? Let me just point out one last thing here. Write this down. This is the third thing that you can know about yourself because you know Jesus this morning. Number three, we find our serenity when we see his seat. We find our serenity when we see his seat. There is a real premium in our world right now in, uh, for peace and serenity, <laughs> for, for, for like any kind of peace. I mean, we, we just, I, I don't know about you guys, I just feel like the world has never been crazier in my lifetime we're all stressed out because we're all watching too much news and we're all on the Facebook too much and social media and everything just looks like it's going the wrong direction. Economy is going the wrong direction. Everything's going the wrong direction. Okay? But I just want you to see one very clear thing here and that is in our text, Jesus, I know this is obvious, but hear it anyways, Jesus is seated above it all, right? He's seated above it all. You don't have to be wrapped up in the world or rolled up with the world, okay? Because Christ is above the world. You don't have to be wrapped up in the world. You don't have to be rolled up in this world. Jesus is above this world. His throne is above this world. This world is his footstool. His enemies are his footstool. Now, question, this is important. Where are you sitting? Are you sitting under his feet? No. Good job. Good job. Good job, Noble. These kids are listening. You know, it's, it's incredible. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. It says, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together. Listen, with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Here it is, verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us, where? With him. 
with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are seated at the right hand of the Father. We're seated there. And we say, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm sitting here in Grants Pass at Philippi. What do you mean we're seated? We are seated because we have been united spiritually to Christ. Our position is firm and secure and eternal. We are with him at the right hand of the Father. That doesn't mean that this stuff isn't scary. It doesn't mean it's not depressing. But for crying out loud, guys, we are seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's going to roll this whole thing up like a bedroll. He's going to roll it up like a crepe. <laughs> okay? And, and, uh, and we are, are seated at his right hand. I just, we just need to remember that. Okay? That's why Christians should be steady through times like this. Doesn't mean we don't get scared. Doesn't mean we get freaked out. But when everyone around you is freaking out because of who got elected governor or because of what measure got passed, like, yeah, that's frustrating. But can I just remind you? If you're in Christ, you are seated at the right hand of the Father. That's good news, okay? So let me review, okay, three things. Let me just give them to you again. We find acceptance when we see his preeminence. We remember that we are sons and daughters because he is the Son of God. We find transcendence when we see his ascendance. And we remember that he has uh, become the firstborn into a new world. And we find our serenity when we see his seat. This is the Jesus that the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to see. Not a Jesus who is in the grave, but a Jesus who is high and lifted up, seated with all power and authority. The author of Hebrews is prosecuting to us and to the original audience that Jesus is higher. He is greater. It's the point that we're getting at, and we need to see him that way. So next time you say something like, I don't know about theology. I'm not really into theology. I want you to replace the word theology with reality, and then listen to that sentence. I think I'm going to take a break from reality for a while. I don't do reality. Reality is too dry, okay? Reality, too divisive. Actually, kind of sounds like Gen Z and millennials a little bit. Isn't it? <laughs> My truth, your truth, whatever. We can all have truth. It's good, you know. Uh, next time you say, you know, I don't really do theology, what you're saying is I don't do reality because ultimate reality is Jesus. And you got to do it. you got to figure it out. And there's passages like this one today. They're, they're not easy. I'll, I'll be honest. I, I spent a lot of hours this week trying to understand this passage. But it's so worth it. It's so worth it to be reminded of who Jesus truly is. So let me end with one quick exhortation here, and then we're going to break into some circles. The question I think we need to ask here is, why is the author taking so much space to contrast Jesus with angels? Right? It's kind of strange. Why is he taking so much space to contrast Jesus with angels? I think the answer is, listen, the answer is we have a tendency to ascribe, we have a tendency to ascribe praise to that which reflects God and ministers God's glory. And I think that's kind of what's happening here a little bit, is that this original audience was, was sort of overemphasizing that which was meant to reflect God's glory. And we have a, a tendency and a temptation to do that. So I just want to point that out really quick. Maybe for us, our tendency isn't to worship angels, but there are similarities between what we tend to overemphasize. Let me give you a few. We tend to overemphasize things that are beautiful. Angels were beautiful. They are beautiful. Even Satan prays himself as an angel of light. He is beautiful. We tend to overemphasize things that are beautiful, like God. Okay? We do this with human beings. We do this with angels. We do this with creation. We do this with art. We need to remember that God is the source of beautiful things. Okay? We do this with things that are powerful. We like power. We're drawn to power. 
because God is powerful. He's the source of power. And these angels are powerful beings. So there's multiple times in the scriptures where you'll see people bowing down to these angels, worshiping these angels. And the angel has to say, stop. You have no idea how much more powerful he is, right? So we worship things that are powerful. We worship influence or powerful people. Okay, beware of that. We, we tend to overemphasize things that are helpful. Angels are helpful. They're ministering spirits. They're ministering to us. And so oftentimes we can overemphasize those things that are there to minister to us. We forget that really we should focus on the one sending that to minister to us. We overemphasize counselors, mentors, coaches, pastors, politicians, potential politicians. We need to remember that these things are sent to minister to us. They are not God. And lastly, we tend to overemphasize things that are mystical. And I think that's why people are drawn to angels a little bit, right? They're mystical. They're interesting. Sometimes I see people all the time, they, they forsake the plain reading of God's word for something mystical. The hidden books. The hidden knowledge. Reading between the lines. Like, are you content with what has been revealed by Christ in the scriptures? So, just a quick exhortation for you there that, that I think we're meant to, to apply to ourselves. So, in conclusion, it's not wrong to be impressed with, thankful for, or curious about that which God made. Just don't let, it pray, don't let your praise stop short of Christ. Thank God for these things. Amen? Okay, I am going to give us, believe it or not, I'm actually going to give us 20 minutes now. 20 minutes. Usually I go way too long. I'm going to give 20 minutes. Uh, hey, if you're new and, and, and you're just checking Philippi out, um, we do this really weird thing where we actually like to talk to each other at the end of church sometimes and have a discussion uh, about the text or about the sermon. So this morning, if you're up for it, if you're not, that's totally fine. No one's going to judge you. Or if you just want to sit in a circle and kind of listen, that's cool too. But I have a couple questions that we're going to throw out for you guys to discuss in groups of three and four. And here they are. Number one, what is one thing you learned or found interesting in Hebrews chapter four, 1, 4 through 14? My hope for this would be that you actually open your Bibles again and that you're looking at the passage again and you're having a discussion again about it. Number two, we looked at three things we can know about ourselves by looking at Jesus. What are three more in the passage? So I'm inviting you guys this morning in your groups to become Bible expositors, to become Bible students, and have a conversation about what else is in there. There was a lot in this passage that I didn't dig into purposely because I want us to do it in circles together. You guys up for that? Three people are. Okay, great. <laughs> Press into it, guys. This is good. I just want to say this. You need this. You need to be the church. You need to be the body of Christ. Church is not come, sit, and leave. Church is to engage. So let me pray over you. Break into groups. Father, bless this time. I pray we'd have good conversation, that you would meet us in these circles. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, groups of four or five. And I'll come back up in 20, and I'll close this out.